0: Welcome to The Unmade Podcast. I'm Kat McGinn and today I'm joined by award-winning creative Jonathan Pease. JP began his career in BBDO in New York, went on to found creative agency Tongue and today he's talking to us about his new book, Winning the Room. So welcome to The Unmade Podcast, JP. Uh, Your new book is just hitting the shelves. How does it feel to be the, uh, the author of Winning the Room?
1: It feels fantastic and scary, to be frank. I'm sort of dying for people to read it, but at the same time, I'd love it if they just looked at the cover and moved on. But anyway.
0: What was it that prompted you to to write this book? Just for for people who may not know, um, it's a book about pitching and public speaking, particularly for uh, the business community.
1: Look, I mean, it's probably not overly obvious as to why I would write a book about pitching. Uh, Most people would assume that I would write a book about creativity, I guess, or maybe even running an agency. But uh, I've been sitting in pitches now for the last 29 years, and I've been watching and learning and gathering. And during that process, I've just, I think, grabbed together the most actionable, most road-tested skills. And I've thought, hey, you know what? It works in a workshop, which I do a lot of, but it felt like a book was probably required. I don't know if it actually was, but I believe it was required. And yeah, I got a lovely offer to do a book. So combination of just experience plus the luck of someone asking me to do it, those two things collided and hence the book.
0: And I think I should just mention that I helped out with some research for this book. So I do know some of the material. What seems really interesting to me is that you make a, a point that for for communications professionals, often we're, we're not that great at, at sharing ideas or, or telling our stories. What do you think that's about?
1: Yeah. And just to first of all acknowledge, yeah, you're a huge part of the book and very grateful for everything you did to help. So Yeah. Hats off to you. Um, Yeah. Look, I think most people in business rely on being excellent at their job, being a thought leader, and then they leave the presentation or pitch moment up to mainly luck, right? They just sort of roll into these very important one-hour slots that can really play out the trajectory of a person's career in that one hour. I think a lot of people in business, and probably in life, rely on luck and their own personality when it comes to public speaking or pitching. and I I just think that's a real miss because these are those one-hour slots that end up paving the way for a year, two years, sometimes longer, of a piece of business or an opportunity or funding of an idea. So, I have become obsessed with those one hour blocks, that pitch moment. And I really want to design them, right? Design every single inch of that moment and give ideas the best chance of happening, right? I mean, it really comes down to people saying, yes, that's that's what I want to do for myself, for my teams, for anyone I work with when it comes to workshopping. And now hopefully people that read the book, I'm hoping people will find more yes in their life. That's the that's the whole reason for writing it.
0: And what? Why do ideas, you know, not get that yes so often? I mean, is it that great ideas are table stakes for our industry? And what is it that we need to do differently to, to get to the yes?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think ideas often die in the pitch room because if they're any good, they're different and maybe slightly provocative and potentially not easy to get your head around. So a lot of audiences, whether it's clients or investors or community groups, they're quite quick to dispel or um, move away from ideas that don't feel hugely comfortable. As we all know, it's those ideas that provoke and create real change. They're the ones that have to get up, but by their very nature, they're a little harder to buy. So, The way you present it and the way you pitch it often is the difference between success and failure, which is concerning because it's actually not about the quality of the idea. I've seen pretty ho-hum ideas get up and I've seen brilliant ideas die based on the way they were pitched. Um, So that to me is quite a lot of consequences. Again, that's that's part of my motivation for being so leaned in on this subject matter. I, I don't want great ideas to die. I want them to live, my own and other people's.
0: And now that we're tackling the issue of artificial intelligence and it's permeating every fibre of society, what do you think is the the way that, I mean, what, how are you thinking about AI and what the value of human creativity and, and sort of being human is in that context?
1: Yeah, gosh, AI is such a big subject matter. Look, I think I think we're overestimating it in a whole bunch of areas. And then I think we're dramatically underestimating it in a bunch of other, probably quite world-changing areas. Uh, when it comes to pitching and these moments of, you know, interaction with other human beings, trying to get an idea to happen, get it funded, or what have you, I think there's a really special role for people getting better at pitching because, yeah, AI can do a lot of the base work. They can bring a lot. It can bring a lot of the materials together. Really well, um, and it can systemize and automate most of our lives. What it can't do at the moment, and hopefully not for a while, is create that truly human connection, right? One on one or one to many, building that connection and that chemistry between people. Uh, that's something that I think will be in our domain, certainly for our lifetime. I'm, I'll probably regret saying that, but I believe for our lifetime. Uh, that will be ours to own. So therefore, if you follow that bouncing ball forward, if we're all working with similar base metals and we're bringing them together, you know, into you know slightly different but maybe slightly commoditized solutions, it then comes down to well, who can move the people? Who can get people to really buy in, rationally but also emotionally? Who can create chemistry? So. The other people in the room want to work with you beyond your price, beyond your idea. Uh, how do you create that connection so your idea, your agency, your business is chosen to be that partner? Um, I just don't think AI is going to get there, not for a while at least. Uh, so that's our responsibility and that's our opportunity. Uh, so, look, I couldn't be more excited about the role that pitching and presenting has in this changing AI world. Uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity.
0: That's an interesting thought about the, the human connection being, I suppose, in a world where it may become hard to trust, um, you know, to know what's real. Then maybe the human connection becomes paramount. Can we talk? Can we talk a bit more about pitch? Sorry, about chemistry, because in your in the book you talk about that being something that pitch doctors have have really set as the the key driver for a, a decision from a client after a pitch. Yeah. So look, I
1: had an agency for. 10 years and as you I mean I was the creative part of that agency but still one of the people who had to worry about paying the you know paying the salaries for our people every month uh, as a result i became quite obsessed with what makes an agency win and more to the point what makes an agency lose and during that process of obsession i spent a lot of time with pitch doctors all over town and I would talk to them about what's the difference. Like I understand price and quality of ideas and quality of strategy, it's all important. But what's the what's the thing that knocks one agency into the winning category and the rest out of that category? And not always, but often it came down to chemistry. Right? And multiple levels of chemistry. Level 1, the chemistry that agency has with the client, right? Is there a connection? Do they feel like like like-minded people with similar values going for similar outcomes? But then level two, what's the chemistry like at that agency? How does that group of people get together? How do they collaborate and work? And what will it be like for me as a client to work with that group of people? Um, So I think agencies that can nail chemistry, and of course, it has to be authentic. You can't sort of, you know, it's not about... I don't know, rolling in the nice people, and I don't know, playing foosball, It's got to be, it's got to be authentic chemistry. But if you can get that right, I, I think that really overshoots almost everything else. Um, and look, I don't think many agencies think that much about it, and I doubt they design it.
0: So let's talk a bit about that idea of of designing it and and practicing it and and rehearsing it. Even I think something that you've spoken about is this, you know, real reluctance for people to spend the time in in honing the pitch in presenting from a place that's you know there's a there's a whole dimension about being polished but also coming across as authentic and likable how do you think people need to think differently about the need to set up that rehearsal time
1: rehearsing is fundamental right You, you you've just got to rehearse and rehearsing by the way is not running through the presentation. I see lots of agencies run through presentations. You know, you're in a room. Okay, here are sort of the slides we're going to present. Hey, you're going to say this first bit, I think, and, you know, then I'll do this bit, and, you know, there'll be a conclusion over here. All of that sort of stuff is run through, right? That's It's valuable, but it's nothing like rehearsing. Rehearsing is where the content is locked, and we then go through the presentation exactly like it's going to be in the room. We have a mock audience that we've collected together. So there's real people in the room giving us feedback, asking questions. And we really try to create everything as if it's going to be in the room. So that once we're in that high stakes environment, nothing new happens, right? Everything we're doing, we've already done it once at least before. Uh, That allows people to feel a lot more comfortable and confident and really start to bring in their own stories and anecdotes and things that you can build around the content, which naturally make it feel more authentic.
0: I suppose the fact that we call it a run-through implies that something about the amount of time we're willing to devote to it. It's not a meander through, it's a a speed.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Is it maybe sort of thinking about this, flipping the the sort of 80-20 rule on the the head, maybe we should be spending much more time in that part of that process rather than in coming up with the 300 slides in the deck?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean – uh, I'm, a, I'm an avid student of pitching and presenting, right? Like I get it, I've written a book and I've done workshops with lots of clients for a couple of decades, but I remain a student. So for example, last week uh, we had a very important presentation working in with an agency helping them on how they might well articulate the content but also deliver it in a way that's really engaging. And something we spent a lot of time on was what do we want the mood in the room to be? And I know that maybe sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it was interesting because in this instance, the agency had been working with the client for a while and in many regards, they'd sort of been ghosted, right? So it had been months between meetings, they hadn't really been getting much feedback and the relationship had become, well, let's just say quiet. And... We set the idea that we would go in with interested but a little bit annoyed and that was the tone that we went into the room with and it was just very interesting because I got to be I got to be in the room for that presentation and the way the client started the meeting they spoke about a reality check and then the rest of the room from the agency were able to respond to that not in a you know, oh gosh, please, can we have more work? Can we do more, you know, billing with you? Instead, the agency were able to come at it from, I guess sort of, I mean, not critical, but just from a real point of view. And they were able to talk about um, the lack of communication and things that needed to be worked on as well. So it became much more like a partnership rather than a master-servant relationship. That's a fairly long story, but I guess the headline is, I'm trying to think about beyond the content, beyond the price, things like mood and chemistry and uh, other softer skills that we can bring into presenting, just because I see that really be the difference, right? Like, usually the price and the idea, it helps and it's a big part of it. You've got to have those fundamentals right. But then, what can you do as the top spin on top of that to get your agency, your idea to rise above?
0: something that i think is quite interesting is that you talk a lot about being likeable which is i think not a quality that necessarily anyone is really considering they're thinking about being sort of competitive or you know effective but likability seems it's it's an unusual topic of conversation how do you think people should think about that need to balance being who you are as a person and who you are as a professional should they be the same thing
1: yeah well i I mean i think Likeability is hugely important. And you're right, in the business world, people don't think about it. They, they probably revert to, I'm a subject matter expert. I've got the best ideas. We've got the best price. Any of those sort of fundamental things. And hopefully that's enough. Um, I think people work with people they like. So if you can find authentic ways to be more likable and to build bridges and build connection with your audience, whether it be a client or an investor or whoever, uh, I think it'll it'll serve you and your business very well. Um, and I know it's a gap because when I work with clients, I'll say things like, okay, so there's a big pause in the presentation. Now, what are you doing during that pause? And usually I get blank stares from around the room and people say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I don't know, looking down or going to the next point or what have you. And, and I often just say, hey, why don't you take a moment to smile, you know, look around the room and smile at people. And it's it's often quite a, gosh, okay, that's a revolutionary idea. Um, and obviously in our personal lives, it would be completely natural. But in the business world, how often do you take those moments to smile and connect with people uh, above the work? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a very interesting opportunity that most people don't really think about. Uh, and it does make a difference. You know, we're trying to get to partner, I believe, any agency, any business should be trying to get to partnership status, right? We're in this together. We're helping each other. We're being honest. We're saying what needs to be said, even if it's, you know, inconvenient. If we can get to that level, that's where you get relationships that endure. Uh, And they're not coin operated. They're about about a relationship. And I do think that comes down to likability.
0: Do you think that part of the issue is that people are so worried about public speaking that when they're in that moment, they become a little bit robotic by by default, almost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a very hard line between enjoying pitching or presenting or public speaking, whatever you want to call it, and everything else. And something I try and work with people on is just knocking them over that enjoyment line, just the slightest bit, and I always know the penny is dropped. When I hear someone I'm working with tell me, oh, you know, I actually enjoyed one little part of a presentation. When I hear that, I know it's begun, right? Like that's, to me, that is the difference. You're either in there doing a job, uh, trying to tick boxes, trying to get to the end, or you find even just the slightest glimmer of joy. And when you find that, that, I believe, becomes a difference because that's where people get in the room, they start to express themselves. They start to have fun. They start to naturally build chemistry. Do you know what? They're actually enjoying it. They're having fun. That's contagious. And the whole mood of a meeting changes. Uh, Before you know it, you're in a really fruitful partnership rather than a buy and sell engagement.
0: Let's talk a bit more about the idea of being a a true partner, because that's obviously something that agencies have been talking about for a long time and perhaps thinking that the existing model isn't really serving either the, the the agency side or the client side how do how do agencies need to to think differently about what services they provide the role they have what is the value of an agency for a client
1: yeah look i mean it it's a big question in my opinion it's all got to be about commercial outcomes right if work isn't working well, probably not worth doing. And I know that sounds obvious, but I do think there are a lot of uh, situations out there where the commercial outcomes are not really in focus. I think the sooner an agency or really any any partner can be thinking about commercial outcomes with the client, the sooner that will become a true partnership, right? Like shared goals, shared outcomes with anyone with a C in front of their title, that that is what works, right? CMO, CEO, CPO, CTO, C whoever, they are thinking about commercial outcomes, whether the agency realizes it or not. So the sooner we can be thinking about, okay, what's the creative way we can get to that commercial outcome? Sooner we can get there, the sooner we'll be in a partnership. Uh, And certainly that's something that I'm pretty obsessed with. I started as a suit, so I guess I was on the more commercial side of the business. I then changed to being a creative and I I find that I get the most traction with clients when I'm able to weave those two worlds together. So I kind of bring commercial and creative together and I see the same when I work with agencies, the ones that can figure out those two sides of the coin. Uh, I think I think that's where the biggest rewards are.
0: Do you think that that whole idea of these responsibilities being held by different people or groups within agencies is is maybe contributing to that lack of effectiveness and cohesion and what having creatives be, you know, maintaining that focus on a commercial outcome. Yeah.
1: My fundamental belief is that agencies need to be problem solvers and driving to outcomes. And I believe anyone in an agency can contribute to that. I have certainly had my most success when we've got people from all walks of life and all job titles involved in the work, right? Just completely blown up that wall between creative and the rest of the agency and made it the work of everybody. That That's where I've had the most success and traction in my career. Number one, it's the most fun. Number two, you get to the freshest ideas because you've got diversity of thought on the front end. Uh, and number three, everyone's ownable, right? Like they're completely... Owning the work, they're accountable for the outcomes. Yeah, it's a it's a much better way to work. And I, look, I know there are lots of agencies that that talk about that and try and do that, and it's not easy. But I do I do think that's where uh, the really great agency client relationships live.
0: Can we talk a bit more about the the diversity? Um, I'm still seeing on our industry events, you know, panels made up of entirely middle aged white men. Despite that. You know, I, I think at uh, made. we work quite hard to, to make sure that we're finding the best speakers from a diverse range of, of backgrounds and, and skill sets. Why do you think it is that we're still struggling to, to, to nail that diversity piece?
1: Gosh, good question. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know, but the one thing I do know is it's got to be about the best minds, the best thinkers, the best ideas, no matter what job title, gender, age, anything. like it, it just needs to be about the best possible ideas and thinkers. Certainly, that's how I've run any agency I've been involved with. That's how I run my day-to-day now. I just want to be surrounded by people that can teach me and inspire me. And I could care less where they're from or their background or anything else. To me, it just means nothing, it's all about the best. Now, that's easy to say as a white man, and I get that. Um, So what I think about is, not only is it about the best of the best, that's who I wanna work with, I also think about, well, who in the team or who in teams that I work with needs a little bit of encouragement or a lift to come out of their shell or get their confidence or find their voice. Again, that could be from any background, but I'm actively looking for that as well because I often think there is untapped brilliance all over agencies and all over the business landscape. And if you don't actively look for it and actively seek out these people, they can go missed. And that's not because of any, you know, ageism or racism. It's just because maybe they haven't found their voice yet. So. Yeah, I try and bring those two ideas together. I want the best possible thinkers. And then I look for people who may well be untapped for whatever reason. And I try and bring them to the fore. Um, and, you know, if you come back to the book and the whole reason why I'm obsessed with winning the room, it it's really about getting great ideas to happen and letting people who maybe don't feel confident or don't feel like they can be engaging or don't feel like they've earned the right to ask for money, it's giving them the tools and the systems so they're able to do it, right? Like, yeah, that as an ultimate goal, If if I could help people get their ideas up who wouldn't have otherwise been able to do it and maybe wouldn't have otherwise even shared those ideas with the world, I mean, that would be nirvana for me, absolutely nirvana for me.
0: So I have a couple of questions. So something I hear often from from even you know very senior women is they'll say I'm not sure if I'm the best person for this 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 speaking engagement or this interview or whatever it is. What would be some advice that you would give those those women say to 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 encourage them to step forward and to, to find that voice?
1: Wow, we're really going there. I'm I'm not I'm not sure I'm uh, you know overly qualified in this subject matter, but I can only tell you. You know, what I would do and look, lots of my clients, obviously, are women, uh, and I and I talk to them about this kind of stuff. Look, you know, I I think at the end of the day, no matter gender or age or what have you, a lot of us feel that way, right? A lot of us feel like, geez, am I really the best person to talk to about this? You know, am I really worthy of being in this room? Um, you know can I really command that kind of budget I think I think that's a that's a sort of widespread feeling across the industry I think it's you know umbrella term imposter syndrome so I don't think that's reserved for any particular group um, and my advice to anyone is experiment try it right like what's the worst thing that can happen um, I think is, as I believe it was Wayne Gretzky. As Wayne Gretzky said, uh, you miss every shot you don't take. Um, you know, that's that that's how I try and live my life, right? I, I I go for the shot. I try. If it misses, all good. I'll learn, I'll regroup, I'll try again. Uh and you know what? It's a numbers game. Eventually you'll get the puck in the the net, I think they call it in hockey. Uh, so yeah, that would be my advice. Just experiment, give it a go. what's the worst thing that can
0: happen or even maybe what's the best thing that can happen?
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah I heard a lovely a lovely quote just this morning actually um, on a podcast and it was a guy talking about what his dad his dad's number one lesson was and it was what would you do if you didn't believe you could fail? Right, how high would you aim? How big would you dream? And look, it's it feels slightly slightly over the top, but you get the point, right? Like so many of our limitations are self-imposed. And certainly that's the case in pitching, right? Like people people hold so much back. They don't put their own personal stories in there because maybe they don't think they're valid. They don't they don't truly express themselves because, oh gosh, you know, why would they want to hear from me, et cetera, et cetera. Like We've just got to dispel those myths and just get those walls out of the way and really express ourselves. Um, Coming full circle back to AI, that's what AI can't do. Sure, someone's going to tell me they can do it soon, but I don't think it's in our lifetime. Uh, Hopefully not in our career lives. Um, Yeah, expressing yourself, bringing your personality, bringing your humanity to the table, that is unique, completely yours. No one else can take it away from you. And right now, AI can't do it. So yeah, that's what we all need to be leaning into.
0: I think that's the, the the best and most optimistic way of thinking about this. Just really doubling down on all the things that make us uniquely human, weird, wonderful in all of our diverse glory.
1: Absolutely, man. I, I, I'm an optimistic realist. Uh, I always start positive and then look for evidence.
0: I quite like this uh, an idea that someone, I, I think actually I, I saw this on TikTok, is um, the, the word pro So rather than paranoia, thinking the universe is out to get you, what if the universe was conspiring in your favor? And I think that's absurd, obviously, but what it, what an interesting way of reframing the way that you are in the world. What if it's not always avoiding pitfalls? What if it's reaching towards opportunities?
1: As you know, I've I, I've bought a place in Byron recently and I spend a fair bit of time there. So I'm probably just about to become, you know, the classic Byron person when I make this next statement. But the difference between giving yourself a pep talk, manifesting a really, really positive outcome, and basically three seconds before walking into the room, just saying to yourself, man, you rock you absolutely rock and you're going to smash this. And you walk in and pitch. The difference between that and going in with self-doubt and nerves and cramming your notes at the last minute and wondering about the consequences and, you know, oh gosh, how do I look today? The outcomes are so different. The content is the same, but the outcomes are different. Now, I don't know if it's manifesting or whatever it is, right? And I Appreciate I'm feeling very Byron right (laughs) now. But as a test case of one, I know that if I go in with positive self talk and I give myself a G up, I know those outcomes are nearly always better. And if I go in with self doubt and I go in with negative self talk, they're almost always worse. And that is something we can all do, right? That's free, readily available. You're the only person stopping yourself from doing that. Um, yeah, a little bit of I rock chat before a pitch is powerful.
0: So you're you're going into pitch with your pockets full of rose quartz and... Uh...
1: <laughs> exactly. Fresh out of my ice bath and yeah, that's me.
0: Back to... I guess maybe a bit more of a practical um, note, what are some maybe three just really tangible, practical things that, that media and marketing people could do differently to improve those pitching outcomes?
1: Yeah. Okay. So number one that I always get executives to think about is PERB, which is a very simple, circular model for any point that you want your audience to remember. And PERP stands for P for make the point, E for explain the point, and then RP for repeat the point. So any point you want to make and you want your audience to remember it, you've got to make the point, clearly state it. You then explain the point. That's where you swim around in the content, bring some color and light. And then at the end, big pause, repeat the point. And it's a terrific way to organize your own pitch, but also very, very helpful for clients and audiences. And what you will see is if you pause and then make a point, the audience will look up. You then explain the point as they are sort of head nodding and you're doing some nice body language and eye contact with them. You're getting on the same point and the same page. And then when you pause and repeat the point, almost always a pen comes out and they write down the point. So that is a A very simple model. And I think in any great presentation, you've probably got three to five big essential points. Each of those needs a perp.
0: And what if you've got more than three to five essential points?
1: Cut your presentation down. Cut your, like, unless you're presenting to AI, human beings are not able to consume more than three to five big points in one presentation. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is a mistake I see across the industry, right? These 100-page, 150-page pitch presentations riddled with brilliance that ends up dissolving in the room because there's just too much to grab, too much to remember. I don't really understand what I'm meant to take out of this room and then share with my boss or share with my community. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, if you've got more than five big points, cut the rest down, please.
0: And what about the idea of just taking your time a bit more? That's something that you talk about often.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, look, my second, my second, I guess, bite-sized tip would be around pausing. We all speak too fast, especially when the stakes are high. We're in one of those presentation rooms. So you've got to design pausing into your presentation so during your rehearsal period, you've got to figure out when would be the most important and impactful moments to put pauses around, rehearse it with those pauses in place, and then make sure you're executing that in the room. Number one, it'll make you feel more in control. It'll demonstrate some confidence. Number two, it gets your audience to lean in, gives them time to digest, um, And number three, it's just a great habit to just get you to slow down, right? Just slow down the presentation. I actually think people could pause for a hell of a lot longer and just live in silence, probably smiling and interacting with body language around the room. I think we could all do that a hell of a lot more in presentations. Uh, It certainly makes them more impactful.
0: And what would you say to people who say they don't have time to practice all of this stuff? They just don't have time to rehearse and to to build in all of this pacing and pausing and so on.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's two, there's two sort of questions there. Don't have time to rehearse. Uh, well, my response to that is, is it actually worth presenting, right? If you, if you don't have time to, re- to rehearse, if you don't think the stakes are high enough to rehearse, maybe this is an email. Maybe this is a packaged up PDF that you send, right? Maybe it's a phone call. Uh, potentially not a presentation if the stakes aren't high enough for you to rehearse. And if you don't think you've got enough time to pause in the meetings, well, then you've got too much content. You need to strip back content. If you've got an hour, I would design content for 20 minutes. And then I would use 20 minutes for conversation. And I would use 20 minutes spare for either an early mark or Q&A or for you to ask them questions and then get them to play things back to you, whatever it may be. But the point is, one hour slot like we normally get in these moments, 20 minutes of presentation, 20 minutes of conversation, and then 20 minutes buffer, which undoubtedly you will always lose or use, shall I say, not lose, um, undoubtedly you will always use that extra 20 minutes. Um, The mistake I see is lots lots of people go in with an hour worth of presentation in an hour slot. Well, inevitably, that becomes a one-way presentation, not a conversation, not something that people can truly buy. Uh, and that is our ultimate outcome, right? Getting people to say yes.
0: And so that idea of turning it into something that's a bit more of a, a dialogue, that's that's pretty key?
1: Very key. Very key. I think, I think when you're talking, people are considering, they're digesting. And I think when people are talking, as in when your audience is talking, I think that's when they're buying. So you want to get them talking as soon as possible. One of the disciplines I try and put into presentations that I work on, I want people talking in the first three minutes. So I want my audience responding to me in three minutes, preferably in one minute, but at minimum in three minutes. That just makes sure that they're involved. They realize it's a conversation, not a sit back, second screen. I'm just going to absorb information. This is a back and forward conversation, we're going to work at this together uh, and get to an outcome that works for both of us. Again, back to that idea of partnership, right? I'm not here to sell you something. I'm here to invest in something with you that's going to drive outcomes for both of us. That's a very, very different way to pitch.
0: Thank you so much, JP. That was a really great conversation. All I can say is I suggest everyone goes and uh, grabs a copy of Winning the Room. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Unmade podcast, made possible with the ever patient help of Abe's Audio. We'll see you next time. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.